Hi, I'm Kevin Barrett. I've been broadcasting Truth Jihad Radio since 2006, and it's been crowdfunded since about 2010. Crowdfunding allows me to say exactly what I want, bring on whichever guests I want, and essentially engage in all-out free speech without being interfered with by corporate institutions, university trustees, um, government censors, or anybody who's paying me to say things that they deem acceptable. The only people paying me to bring on guests like uh, these great guests I'm bringing on tonight, Eric Wahlberg and Josh Middledorf, uh, is you, the listeners. You guys are kicking in just peanuts to make this kind of radio possible. And if there's no crowdfunded free speech radio, then all you're going to get is the usual pablum that's controlled by the usual demonic institutions. So if you like this kind of radio, please do support it. Become a subscriber by way of kevinbarrett.substack.com or you could offer a one-time donation by way of a PayPal to truthjihad at gmail.com. Ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These Liquor. are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome, this is the special live version of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett doing the show every weekend evening, bringing you interesting people who think way outside the box and often think better than the people way inside the box. I've been doing this now since 2006 on all of the leading radio networks, alternative radio networks, I suppose I should say, although that kind of goes without saying. We're talking about the very best of the various radio networks, and I should mention that Revolution.radio is the finest of free speech networks. If you want to help them keep going, go to revolution.radio slash donations.html. Okay, and I'm, of course, at truthjihad.com, where I do all sorts of stuff, and a lot of it is based in reaching out to people who know a lot more than I do about various things. And both of tonight's guests probably qualify in terms of the subject we're talking about tonight, the evolution of beauty. We're going to be talking about a book by Richard Prum, The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. It was just reviewed by Eric Wahlberg, who's a well-known journalist who's been on the show many times. He used to be a correspondent for Al Ahram in Cairo, and he's written for all sorts of folks in all sorts of places. And uh, Eric, he's not really a scientist, but uh, he's, a, he's a pretty sharp reader. And joining us is a real-life scientist with a background in evolutionary biology, and that's Josh Mildorf. And both of those guys actually know more than I do about this, because Eric read the book, which I haven't. <laughs> I think Josh is even reading it, too. So hopefully I'll keep my big mouth shut for a lot of this hour. <laughs> so let's bring on the guys who need to do the talking. So first, uh, welcome Eric Wahlberg. How are you? Good. Thank you. Hey, and Josh Middledorf, good to have you back. 
at least I think it's good to have you back. If we do have you back, it would be good anyway. Josh, are you there? Now, they were still working on connecting to Josh Middeldorf, but hopefully we'll we'll get on that pretty soon. I don't know if I need to check the board here and see if see if there's been an effort to contact Josh. Oh, yeah, there has been. Josh, uh, you should be here. Hello, Josh. Well, hopefully he'll, he'll pop up here pretty quick. Uh, so, Eric, I guess you can start out then as we wait for Josh to show up. Uh, your article on Richard Crumb's The Evolution of Beauty is really... Beautiful. <laughs> so maybe you can go ahead and summarize it for the people who haven't yet read it. Well, it, <clears throat> as I've gotten older, my uh, joys in life are are uh, more modest. And I took up birding over, I guess, about 10 years, the last 10 years. And I've just, be, just fallen in love with birds. They are just, uh, they are angels. We, you know, we take them for granted, but uh, when I go out on a bike uh, ride out into the countryside, always you can hear birds wherever you are. They change. There's different birds. It's, you know, here it's a, spar- a sparrow and there it's a starling or whatever. Anyway, <clears throat> that got me going. And that's how I got onto this book. And I, it's, I, it's uh, um, mind boggling, really, uh, although it's, it's what we should have seen all along or maybe we intuit but we just don't want to admit it, that really uh, it's sex that uh, that makes the world go around. Sex, love, you know, really it's, uh, uh, I like the way uh, Prim is develop, developing this, uh, 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 which is a meme. This is another term that uh, crops up that we we uh, don't evolve physically so much anymore, but through our, our um, tastes and through what becomes popular. So uh, even what is sexually popular is determined by now more by memes. And in the past, it was more by uh, genes. So before the rise of mass advertising and commodities and all of this, life was much simpler. There were, there were no newspapers that was, the people didn't read. Uh, life was much simpler. Uh, uh, and uh, what was determining uh, how people evolved over the millennia, because we're talking now really uh, millions of years, uh, you go uh, back far enough to uh, earlier versions of humans. It's always been uh, the female that's in, uh, she's the one that makes the decision, usually. It's not quite, uh, males of course react and want paternity and uh, become violent or enslave women, but but in much earlier societies, I, I think there wasn't that uh, if you've read Graeber, I don't know if you know, this is a wonderful anthropologist, which is much along the lines of Prum. And he's looking back tens of uh, 10,000, 20,000 years ago, what what uh, uh, life was like for humans. Uh, and uh, he's really coming to the conclusion that it was more matriarchy and it was more uh, female uh, in control and modeling society on the mother-child relationship. So that becomes a kind of paternal, I mean, we talk paternalistic, but it's matriarchal really, that that, uh, idea of of treating people as children that need to be protected, which you could say is a kind of uh, socialism grows out of that as a way of of, uh, um, organizing society. So uh, I've thrown a lot of ideas out there, uh, but uh, I don't know what you want to pick up on. Is Have we got uh, Josh yet? 
Did he arrive? Uh, we're working on it. We're in contact with him, and he might have to switch computers on us uh, to get one that's, that works. Okay, well... Uh, oh, wait a second, Josh, did I hear you? I heard something. No, I guess not. Okay, sorry, Eric. Well, uh, uh, I come up with my formula, which is messy, as I say, but uh, that's very much like sex. It's messy. How's this? You, can you hear me now? Oh. Yes. Hey, Josh, yeah, yes. Josh. Uh, you hey. came in just in time to hear about okay. sex being messy. <laughs> well, okay, let me give me my – this is the formula as I, uh, I, I put it together. Uh, perhaps Josh can – and you can uh, di- dissect it. Um, <clears throat> it's not just the, the, the natural selection, the, the adaptive. It's also the aesthetic, the beauty. So natural selection plus beauty, but then you have to localize it. You have to put it in an umwelt. Uh, which is another term that uh, will, which is basically your, your sensory bubble, your little universe. So each each kind of like uh, sparrows is an umwelt, and humans is an umwelt, and then each of us within uh, humans, we all have our own. Anyway, so you've got to look at what is true for that uh, ethos, that grouping. That if it's humans, uh, or you know, it could be uh, we could. Uh, di- go down farther to S- Sumatra or, uh, you know, uh, Inca uh, natives. I- I leave aside the colonialism, imperialism. We really have to just forget about what we've done because in the last 200 years we've destroyed so much and we've destroyed uh, evolutionary flows. But if you go back before that, you can see that uh, the- this umwelt, each uh, species has its own. So that's what, uh, it's a messy uh, um equation but uh, it really takes in everything that you need i think anyway let's uh, hand this over to yeah yeah so josh what do you think of that and I, it sounds like eric is partly pointing out the sort of subjectivity is part of this biological yes. equation uh, so, so go ahead and take it from there uh, absolutely so i haven't heard the whole thing because of uh, technical difficulties getting hooked up well, yeah, i'm sorry I by the way josh we, we don't we don't so need the camera you can turn off your camera because that'll just eat up bandwidth uh Turn off the camera. Yeah, just camera click, is click. off. There you go. Okay, go ahead. Um, so I, I want to start with my what I got. I just read this book today. So here's what I got out of it. According to the neo-Darwinists, but um, as Prum says, this is not Darwin himself. This is neo-Darwinists who out-Darwin Darwin. They say everything has to be adaptive. And if there is a notion of beauty, especially uh, classically in females choosing a male mate because females have more choice than the males have. Uh, If there's a definite, if there's something, if there must be some real basis for their choice, it must be adaptive. So if they prefer something that's beautiful, if there's some characteristic of the male that they find beautiful, it must be a true report of something about their genetics that will make their offspring more uh, more viable in the future. So this is a better mate choice. And what beauty is about, according to that classic uh, view that uh, Prum is trying to debunk, he says it, it's all about some signal that says, I am more uh, genetically fit than the next guy. And of course, it has to be something that's hard to fake. And what Prum adds to that is he says, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be completely arbitrary. It can be something that 
females prefer. And then males, of course, are motivated to adapt to that preference. And then females uh, um, may sharpen their distinction in response to that. So males develop an even more brightly colored tail feather in response. And you get this runaway selection. It's based on nothing in particular. The, de the definition of beauty is arbitrary, but um, it can go extreme in some direction because of male-female uh, reinforcement back and forth, the, the selection on males and selection on females together produce this effect. And that's really the message of his book, that that's what's happening. And the adaptationist uh, interpretation um, is really can't be sustained for most of the adaptations that we see. So the, I want to take a third position and say it's not arbitrary that there is something real about beauty. Plato said that beauty is a form that exists in this abstract world of forms. And uh, just as there's an ideal circle and all circles that we draw is some version of the ideal for a circle, there is an abstract beauty. And what we perceive as beauty is beautiful because it mirrors in the real world some aspect of that ideal of beauty. So this sounds very unscientific, and the um, the evidence that I would put forward for it, uh, and we, we can discuss this more, but just to outline at the beginning, is that um, there seems to be a shared notion of what beauty is between different species. For example, a flower has to be evolved to be beautiful to a honeybee because uh, the whole purpose of the flower is to attract a honeybee to help with pollination. But why should we find a flower so beautiful if it was evolved to be beautiful to the eyes of the honeybee? And I got that particular example from Rupert Sheldrake. So, so there are the three levels, and I put that out maybe as a basis for something we can discuss. Okay, Eric, did you have a response to that? Yeah, well, I, I agree with what you're saying. That, uh, but that, that's, okay, platonic, uh, the abstract beauty. But that really doesn't tell us very much, I don't think. It's, it's kind of true because it sounds good. Is, I mean, with ideal forms, uh, I, I love them, but <laughs> I don't, they're not very, they don't really uh, take you anywhere. But you're I, not still I, a dialectical materialist, are you, Eric? I, I thought you converted to Islam. <laughs> I'm both. I'm a, I'm a, um, a Marxist uh, Muslim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, let me. Uh, th that's another topic. What what I wanted to uh, really focus on. It, but I'll throw this out now. Birds that, that they are just so fantastic. And why are they fantastic? I don't know if you got the uh, the. Uh, uh, it's not a prank ending, but it's uh, kind of a humorous ending. Uh, I'll. Maybe I'll just uh, go to the bottom uh, here and quote myself because you should. I tell people, don't, you know, go to the end. I'm not a journalist. It's not the pyramid business. I, I put a lot of important stuff at the end. So, uh, of course, then I've got to find it. But the the message is uh, they don't have they don't have a penis. That's why they've done so well. They basically got chucked the whole idea of a penis. It's just cloaca. And so it's just. Uh, um, uh, mating is just takes a second, 
and it's just like a kiss. And then uh, if, the, if, if it's a forced kiss, uh, the female uh, just wait, bides her time till the, till the rapist goes away and then she evacuates his uh, sperm. So uh, she's controlling still the, uh, who, is the, who is the father. And that really, but uh, you look at ducks and they're still, they have this, this really, it's a rape culture. If you look at uh, ducks, it's, you know, they could even kill the, the, and gang up on the female. It's, it's awful what goes on there. Uh, and they have a penis. Uh, they've got, uh, and it's a, quite a long one. They've got the longest one in, in the, it's, 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 read the book. It's fascinating to get this nitty gritty. But you see, you get rid of the penis, and uh, then it's all about uh, how how to uh, best keep the family. That's the basic uh, female thinking. You want your kids. You want your sexy son. That's you see. You 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 still, as Josh said, you've got it's beautiful, but it's not adaptive. But uh, if you have your sexy son look just as ridiculous as the peacock that you mated with, then he's going to attract uh, females and you're going to get your genes carried on. So, you see, it's adaptive in a kind of weird meme sense. It's not adaptive physically because it, 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 it takes away. It, it makes the, uh, the peacock is uh, uh, virtually uh, should be extinct because it's just so incapable of, and it's so obvious, you know, it attracts uh, so many uh, predators. I mean, if you get into that and the birds, if you look closely, you'll see because who? So what about birds? Uh, is it uh, um, single parent families? No, it's 85 percent of the birds. I think it's 90 percent mate for life and 85 percent of the uh, uh, um, matings stay and, and are carrying on the uh, genetically. It's there isn't so much. So, so the birds really got it right. Whereas if you look at mammals, it's 90% of animals. It's the mom has to pick up the kids and take them to school and wash all the clothes and <laughs> the food. She has to do everything. But, and that's mammals. Very, very few mammals. We are just about the only mammal. I forget there's, uh, there's some I lemures or something. I don't know. There's, there's a couple others where there is a mom-pop family. But that's the that's why the birds and look at how many varieties of birds there are. There are over ten thousand species of birds. How many human species are there? <clears throat> are you listening? So, 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 Eric. Yeah. So what, let me. Uh, okay. Let go, me ahead, go ahead, Josh. Josh has a response. How many human species? Please answer my question. How many human species are there? Well, there's one. One. Right. So that says something. Ooh, that's that uh, raises my red alert. Ooh, we're. We're on a path to hell. I'm not sure that's a fair comparison. So, Eric, I agree with you. Say what you say, and for the sake of our uh, listeners, I want to fill in some of the details that are implicit in what you said, and mm. which Prom explains in in his book. Um, so, males evolved to be bigger than females and stronger in many species, so that they can take control of the mating. And it's an advantage for the male to take control of the mating and be in charge. But it's disastrous for the species as a whole. The species as a whole does better if both the male and the female are making the choice. So um, in birds, we have this wonderful adaptation that the 
species develops no penis. And that means that the females can't be raped. They have vulva that open and close. And if a male wants to mate with them, that's fine. I'll just keep my vulva closed. Except ducks. Right. Well, I'll get to the ducks. But this is more than 95% of birds have no penises. So um, this is one of the things that enables beauty to evolve in males because the, in birds rather, because the females have control over who they're going to choose as a sexual partner. So the males have to appeal to them. And the males have developed uh, beautiful plumage. And in some cases, they build houses to show off uh, who they are and what they can do uh, as, a, as a way to bring beauty into the equation. There's another thing which I think Prom doesn't mention, but it, it should be prominent here. Uh, you can't have deer developing um, beautiful colors because it would just make them stand out in the forest and they would get eaten. You can't have rabbits develop. Well, the hunters would think they were having LSD flashbacks. (laughs) Yeah. So so birds, why do birds get away with having these uh, ornate colors that are so showy? It's because they fly and they're much less susceptible to predation than a ground animal is. So there there are kinds of... Here's one explanation of why birds go down this path. They uh, they can get away with evolving these elaborate plumages as a way for the male to show off to the female. And then you, you have this wonderful adaptation, no penis, which is great for the species. It's bad for the males. The male, males can't rape. You, know, you but, guys sound like Andrea Dworkin. Like, just get rid of all yeah, the penises and solve all the world's problems. book. A very feminist book is Prum's book. Okay. I, I, have a uh, qu- I have a quick question, though. Uh, yeah. I, so if, indeed, uh, when the females can control mate selection, that drives the evolution of beauty mainly in males, uh, and in humans are sort of this one species of mammal where females do seem to have quite a bit of influence in mate selection, and yet... It seems, at least maybe from my uh, sexist, uh, heteronormative, white patriarchal view of everything, that it's the females that are much more beautiful. Um, is is, is that the case, or am I just a, a typical uh, sexist? He has a whole freak? chapter. Yeah. He has a whole chapter on this, and I'm sure Eric has some comments on it, too. But uh, he, he says that humans are an exception because both males and females are selective about who they're going to mate with. And most animals... The male just, I mean, he can mate with as many as he wants because sperm is cheap, whereas carrying a baby to, uh, to, to birth and then nurturing the baby afterward, that's expensive. So the male can, af- afford, can afford to be polygamous. The female can't really increase the number of offspring she has by mating with more males. She's limited by her biology. And in humans... That's not true for social reasons. For social reasons, males and females tend to bond together, and therefore the males are picky about what female they choose, just as the females are picky about what males they choose. So I'll pass it to Eric with that. Yeah, okay. So the fact that we are 
two-parent uh, two mom-and-pop family, just like the birds. That's why the male and female of humans uh, really have uh, more choice, more uh, agreement on, on uh, I think it's messy. We, we can't really say, I still think that the females have more control in human society, certainly um, 100,000 years ago, uh, when it's, uh, uh, it's, again, it's the female, it really controls uh, the paternity, not not a hundred percent, but uh, more or less. And uh, uh, you, you said, um, uh, uh, Kevin, that you, of course, we we are we are in a patriarchal society, as you said, we're a patriarchal society, and it's capitalism. It's uh, the media controls who we think are sexy. So we and women have been pushed into a sexy a sexual role that they didn't really play uh, on the whole. I mean, there have always been goddesses and uh, that kind of goddess worship. But uh, I think that uh, it's fair to say that women were not so sexualized before the rise of capitalism. And really, I think that uh, the male versus the female, I mean, that's it's you can say your choice. But uh, Greek uh, uh, classical beauty, the male is the most beautiful. The woman is second. Uh, of course, it's very hierarchical. It's very. Wait, wait a minute. What, what man ever had a face that launched a thousand ships? Well, no, but you see, male beauty is not uh, pretty. Pretty is women. Sure, you you want the uh, women to look uh, uh, um, uh, feeble, uh, yielding, uh, uh, submissive. You want that uh, so that the a male will uh, mate successfully. If you don't, you don't want a big. A uh, woman that's going to, you know, punch you in the face. That's not very uh, uh, easy for the, I mean, you've got to have the male aroused and, and to uh, complete the sex act. So that ha you have to have the female uh, um, appealing. But uh, and you look at the male, female. Uh, another thing about uh, mom pop, uh, you get the minimal dimorphism. It's like in birds. You can't really tell a male and female uh, bird for the most part. And in female, uh, but the, we don't have, we're not, we still have penises. <laughs> so we still have the dimorphism. We still have that aggressive, that, that, that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Oh, hold so, on, let's finish. Let's go back to birds. 80% dimorphism. That, so so w w women are still weaker and lesser than the male. And male beauty is going to be a, a kind of uh, warrior beauty. As we see in uh, Marvel comics. That kind of there's a you know that's a kind of a or Ken Ken and Barbie anyway I'll let uh, Josh take over. Oh, I just wanted to correct one thing that you said that uh, oh. in in birds, I think you were just referring to size. There isn't a lot of size difference between no. males and females in yeah, birds, but in plumage, uh, it's oh, yeah. it's often very easy to tell the male from the, the female. Size, no the, the male is uh, the male is decorated and the female is plain. But the dimorphism in birds is zero, virtually. Uh, uh, it can actually be reversed. It's the size dimorphism, but yeah, not the, the color dimorphism. Oh, okay. Size dimorphism is virtually zero in birds. In humans, it's 18%, which is quite, I mean, women are six inches a foot shorter and weigh a lot less. But if you go uh, higher, uh, the, the actually, no, uh, how does it work? The larger... Uh, the the, uh, the species, the greater the dimorphism. That is how it works generally. Uh, so it's very little dimorphism, tiny uh, animals or birds. 
there's uh, a lot of dimorphism when you get to elephants. And we're in the middle. So I, um, I agree that humans are the most interesting case, but also the hardest to say anything yeah. about that's really going to hold any water because it's, it's really cultural. What affects uh, attractiveness in males and females is very culture bound and cultures are different. And I think it's, it's an interesting chapter, but really the, the bottom line of, of this chapter about um, sexual selection in, in humans is that it's completely culture bound. Right. You can't say anything about it. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't use umwelt. I, he, he, I find this odd that he hasn't. That, that's so central to all of this, and he doesn't even mention it. So there's a, there's some real gaps in this book, and there's some other. Uh, it, uh, he doesn't talk about um, Lamarck. Lamarck, this idea of adaptivity, that, that which also Darwin. He talked about it. He was a little bit unsure. He was unsure. He wouldn't. It was just like with Marx. He wasn't. This guy had something to say, you know, Lamarck, uh, that it's possible to in, to um, uh, have traits that can be inherited kind of directly, more directly, which is yeah. It's a it's a scandal of evolutionary biology that Darwin and Lamarck are put in contra uh, contradistinct to each other. But in fact, Darwin was a Lamarckist. He believed that inherited mm -hmm. that acquired traits could be inherited. He believed that if you work out your whole life, you're going to have stronger children. It's, and it's, if you develop uh, your cognitive abilities, you're going to have smarter children, for example. Um, and whether that's true, I'd say 21st century uh, genetics has certainly validated that it's true epigenetically. Mm -hmm. and, epigenetic. I, I, and there's there's evidence that Lamarckian inheritance happens genetically as well. I, I've written some about that. Oh, that's interesting. Because also, um, Fisher, uh, I love the wokeism that we live, this era of wokeism, where the most brilliant um, uh, evolutionary biologist uh, since Darwin has been blacklisted and uh, his statues are taken down, the name... It's just like with uh, our Prime Minister McDonald, you have to uh, rename schools, you have to tear down the statues. There's all of this, uh, some of it's valid, but some of it, like with Fisher, it's really a shame. Uh, he, he didn't, he wasn't responsible for Hitler. It's like using Wagner of creating Hitler. I mean, well, let's uh, let's go back uh, and fill in some of the, the details for the <laughs> listeners. There was a 1930 book by R.A. Fisher called evolution and natural selection. And he was uh, one of the towering geniuses of the 20th century. Most of the statistical tests that you see, P is less than so-and-so, the T-test, the um, was called ANOVA, analysis of variance and correlation, was all developed by Fisher in the early part of the 20th century. And he uh, although he was a mathematician, he was motivated by wanting to understand uh, genetics. He invented single-handedly the field of population genetics, which has very set assumptions about how evolution works. He mathematized Darwin's theory and made uh, qualitative observational science into a predictive science. 
so in this 1930 book, the first part is very mathematical and very technical and, and kind of a narrow view of how evolution works. The second half of that book is indeed a screed of racism and um, and explicitly eugenicist. He's just he says over and over again that uh, English society is doomed uh, uh, if we can't limit the reproduction right. of those poor masses because the poor masses are genetically inferior to the rich masses that's why they're poor uh, it's it's an embarrassment that half of this book is the basis for modern evolutionary theory the other half of the book is a, a, a eugenics creed hmm. well that actually su supports the arguments of those who are hostile to uh, Darwinian evolutionary thought in general and who argue that it originated with uh, actually uh, kind of these very unfortunate analyses of human societies, and then it was uh, turned to the history of biology. So it actually began with social Darwinism, and then Darwin and uh, colleagues picked it up from, from that. So there's, there is that, that argument really against uh, the uh, the whole evolutionary paradigm that one sometimes hears, uh, but I, I know that uh, that's pre in present company. That's we're not really part of that world. But um, so, so Eric, uh, where, did you want to uh, defend Fisher? Um, well, I wanted to say that uh, uh, I, I'm reading Graeber. This is another uh, the the um, uh, it, it's. Um, it's it's an anthropology kind of uh, of of this of the past uh, ten thousand years, and he uh, comes to some um, similar conclusions that uh, um, uh, let's see oh, um, we, we, well, we were saying that uh, Fisher uh, he was uh, uh, yes uh, Fisher was so racist well uh, uh, Hegel <laughs> hey, uh, if you read uh, what Hegel writes about history. Uh, he just assumes that uh, all of the non-European uh, races will be just exterminated. This is early 19th century. I, I'm aghast. I, I knew he was kind of uh, very uh, conservative and uh, um, uh, elitist, but uh, there, there are his writings where he says, calls for the uh, extermination of all lesser races. So this was, this is the greatest philosopher of the 19th century, you know, a, a total racist. Uh, so you see this, this eugenist, everyone was a eugenicist in the 1920s. It was uh, Shaw, George Bernard Shaw. Uh, I, I could name off, I don't know, dozens of, of people that you uh, would be shocked. But I guess that kind of white racism was just so prevalent that people didn't, you know, it's like swimming in water. You don't uh, fish. It doesn't see the water. So, yeah, that's it's very shocking that, that uh, eugenics became such a, uh, and I guess in a way it did lead to Hitler. I mean, if you've got Hegel um, calling for the, and all of uh, North America, all of our uh, ancestors came here with the idea, idea of, de of exterminating all the natives and stealing their land. So, you know, we're all uh, of that same ilk. So uh, as Josh said, we, we get, it's hard to even talk about uh, evolutionary principles when you're talking about humans. Certainly humans after 
the last, you know, the last 20,000 years, uh, you could say from then on, it, it means become more art. And uh, once you have that kind of intellectual level rising, you, you, you lose uh, the ability to find uh, uh, true evolutionary uh, um, effects. But I, I think if I'll just what, what I like to think, remind myself, the Ma and Pop family, I, you know, I've always uh, I, I tried to go through that, uh, um, you know, alternative lifestyle stuff. But I realize now that I'm old, <laughs> older and wiser that uh, that really is uh, the base. It's the basis of evolution, too. It's that uh, female male uh, dialectic and uh, uh, the, the idea that you can just dispense with that. Uh, this is where I, I kind of end up with my conclusion that the trans movement is really it's a kind of warped eugenics uh, that you're trying to uh, pump people full of uh, hormones to create a new uh, human that is, you know, somehow uh, intermediary or, or whatever. And I also uh, this will be close to your heart, uh, uh, Kevin, is uh, it, look at Israel. Uh, what what have they been doing in the last hundred years? They've been trying to create, uh, you know, a, a, a laboratory country, uh, steal the land and then just build something from scratch that is somehow this dream. They're trying to trying to uh, materialize, incarnate uh, the dream of uh, Jerusalem, of the ancient Jerusalem, which uh, you know the, any kind of weird. Uh, uh, um, distortion of of uh, human, um, whether it's through uh, sex or through uh, just killing and uh, creating some kind of uh, dystopia, uh, they're they're all very uh, suspicious. Okay. Well, I I agree that um, eugenics is a scandal. That uh, evolutionists just don't want to talk about the history in the early 20th century when, as you said all of the evolutionary theorists just took it for granted. And if uh, if you don't mind, I want to go back to ducks because I think it's a wonderful story that uh, Brooke tells that uh, we, we haven't told it in full yet. So uh, as Eric said, ducks are an exception to the rule of penises. And what an exception. A duck has a penis that's as long as his body, uh, longer than human penises is is a male duck's. Does, uh, doesn't it get in the way when they, when he's swimming in shallow water? Um, it they don't have penises for ten months penis. of the year. Yeah, they don't have penises ten months of the year. They grow it in the spring, and yeah, it's it's retractable. It's completely retractable so that it doesn't get in the way. Um, so mallard ducks form mating pairs in the winter when they're migrated far south and a male and a female will choose each other at a time when neither of them is fertile. The male doesn't even have a penis at that point and the female's organs are very undeveloped, but they sidle up to each other. They decide they're going to be a pair and they fly back north together to their mating ground. They land at the mating ground, they copulate, they do their thing. And then the male of the pair has to defend the female. Ducks have evolved a high 
male to female ratio. There are three or four male ducks for every female. So most of the ducks haven't found a mating partner in this uh, game of musical chairs. And they go around in these marauding bands. So these are like the incel ducks. Yeah, you bet. Um, they are. Um, they go around in these marauding, marauding bands and they gang rape the females. And this poor male is trying to defend his, uh, his chosen female and she has chosen him. Um, and they, they don't, predictably, they don't do very well. They're 40% of the matings are by rape and 60% are by the female's choice. So here's a, another twist to this. <laughs> Again, a pun. The male's uh, organ is a corkscrew. It's this, it's this eight-inch uh, corkscrew that turns counterclockwise. And the female's vagina is an eight-inch clockwise corkscrew. So you got a hell of a time uh, fitting it in. Uh, the, it seems that the female's organ is designed to keep the male's organ out. And that even though it works amazingly well in that even though 40% of the copulations of any given female are with males who she did not choose but have forced themselves on her, only 2% of the eggs are, are sired by the rapists and 98% are sired by the chosen male. So this adaptation of having the um, corkscrew in one direction from the, uh, from the male duck and in the other direction from the female duck does a good job of keeping the rapists from actually succeeding in inseminating their prey. That's uh, it's quite, a, quite a tale. Uh, <laughs> yeah. make make any uh, feminist proud yeah yeah so hmm okay well mo moving from from that uh to an i think right the at the beginning of your article eric you uh quoted keats uh, on uh, truth is beauty beauty truth uh uh, that, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know or i don't know if i got that yeah. quite right but i'm, I'm not keats anyway uh so then you talk about the spandrels, which are these beautiful adaptations, these bizarre and beautiful adaptations that take off wildly uh, due to usually in, with birds, uh, female mate selection, a bigger peacock tail every every generation kind of thing. And that that's actually kind of deceptive. It's saying, I am a more fit male, so you should you should breed with me. But actually, the male may not be any more fit just because so much of his energy has gone into growing a bigger, fancier-looking tail. So you're pointing out that sometimes uh, beauty isn't necessarily truth. It can even sort of conceal truth. And uh, I, I have to sort of wonder uh, about, I mean, that may be true in, in this particular case and even, you know, in the case of evolutionary biology in general, I don't know. But it does seem to me, though, that there's a, a level of... Uh, awareness of uh, reality, uh, awareness of truth, as opposed to being captured by uh, illusions that is identical with 
a certain kind of higher beauty. And I'm talking about the sort of thing that mystics have been reporting on for generations and generations. So I just wondered if you know either of you wanted to comment about the possibility that in some sense Keats was right about truth and beauty being interchangeable. What do you mean about the mystic? Give me an example. Oh well, uh, which which mystics should I should I, I don't pick? Use your point. Uh, you're saying that uh, yeah, beauty. Well, yeah, my my point is is that mystics across a long, uh, you know, broad range of traditions uh, report that as they uh, change their consciousness to be more uh, aware of uh, more truth that there's mm. an overwhelming uh, ineffable beauty that accompanies that uh, direct perception of truth with a capital T, what we Muslims would call al-haq. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Does that help? Well, yes, uh, uh, you understand. You, awareness. That's uh, I like your hutbas, too. You had one very good one about awareness, that we really have to... And all awareness is is just uh, you want to have the constant prayer of thankfulness for reality. That should be your your uh, level of awareness. And so, if you really cultivate that level of awareness, beauty is everywhere. You know, even uh, 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 my crazy computer, I can see that there's that it creates beauty. Or you know, or, or uh, there is no real ugliness when you are on a mystical level. So yes, is that that's what you're saying? Yeah, that's what we that's what we strive for is to try and find that uh, that level that where truth and beauty coincide. You, but it's very rare that they actually uh, by chance coincide. You can't. Uh, I'm, I'm a physicist, and <laughs> there's a strong culture in physics, starting I'd say at least with Einstein, that says if an equation is beautiful, if it's simple and elegant, then it must be true, and. Einstein was famous when uh, he came out with his general relativity theory. It's such an elegant theory, so beautiful that he was just confident based on that, that it had to be right. And when Eddington looked at the shift of the position of the uh, planet Mercury, or, or I think it, it was a, it was a different one. It was a di shift of a position of a star that was observed, observed during an eclipse. Yeah. He knew that that, that was going to have to turn out right because his theory had to be true because it was so beautiful. And in, in our day, Sabina Hoffensteller has, is a physicist who's made a name for herself saying, this is ridiculous. Physics is not aesthetics. You can't judge a theory by how beautiful it is. You have to test it against reality. Yeah, That's what physics is. And believe it or not, she's gotten a lot of <laughs> flack about that. But I, I, you know, I think she's absolutely right. Physics has to be tied to experimental uh, verification. You, you need to practice. Uh, I, I love skating. I'm too old to figure skate now, but but uh, you just have to work really, really hard. It's it's to make yourself beautiful on the ice is uh, it's not easy. It's uh, beauty is. It requires so much effort and talent and, uh, you know, and it's not just, uh, it's messy. I think beauty, it's only messy when we don't understand it. When you understand, uh, like I could look at an equation and I, it just looks horrifying to me because I don't understand it. But once I, uh, when I used to understand mathematical equations, yeah, they're beautiful. I love to look at a beautiful equation. It's, it's a work of art. Yeah. So. 
So to put this in, in context, what did Prum mean? Why did he include this quote? He's arguing against the adaptationist paradigm, which says anything that evolves must have some utility for the individual or for the species. And if females have developed a preference for a, a beautiful male, that, beautiful, that beauty must be a true signal of something about the male's genetic fitness that makes him a, a good partner for reproduction. And if, if you admit the possibility of lying, genetic lying would mean having all of these beautiful characteristics, but hiding genetic uh, inaptness to it be a good fit. sometimes, yeah. If something's maladaptive, then the, you go- Absolutely. So you, you're, um, just as there are species, there are poisonous snakes that have a certain coloring and there are other snakes that have no poison at all, but they've adopted that coloring just to make other snakes, uh, other um, animals afraid of them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a, bull, a, bull, a bull snake scared the heck out of me once that way. A bull snake here in Wisconsin that had evolved to look very much like a rattlesnake and who coils up and rears up and uh, shakes his tail as he emits a hiss that sounds just like a rattle. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. So there is a lot of deceit. In evolution, there are um, moths that uh, that evolve to look like the poisonous moth, even though they're not poisonous at all. And there are animals that evolve to look much, uh, much more ferocious than they are to scare off the uh, the predators. Uh, there's a lot of lying. And they're both beautiful. The lie, the the moth that's lying, and the moth that is the real, uh, you know, uh, they're both gorgeous. Sure, but Prum's point point, he's just trying to say this adaptationist business doesn't hold water because it's just too easy to cheat to develop the beautiful characteristics without having the underlying genetic fitness, which is so much harder to come by. and and that undercuts the idea that everything that evolves must be adaptive for the for the species as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's that legend. I don't know if it's true or not about the Irish elk that supposedly the males develop bigger and bigger antlers each generation to impress the females and to win their antler fights. And eventually it reached the point that their heads were weighed down to the ground and they couldn't lift their heads anymore and they all died out and went extinct. I was actually going to write a science fiction novel using that as a kind of uh, metaphor for the uh, human predicament with technology mm-hmm. being our antlers. As yeah. the uh, men get better and better with technology to get richer and more powerful to impress the women and the women keep selecting the men who are better and better at building this technology, eventually uh, one technology or another goes off and uh, and kills us, just like the Irish Elks Antlers did in it. So I, I, I hope that doesn't happen uh, anytime soon, but when the government starts buying up vast stockpiles of radiation pills, I'm starting to wonder if we're not getting into Irish Elk territory. I agree with you, uh, that, and that's where we're headed, that technology for technology's sake is really... Um, putting the future of mankind in jeopardy. I'd like to go back to uh, um, another point that uh, makes that I, I think is very interesting. Uh, what about the female orgasm? Where, why, why do, uh, you know, there's no ejaculation of sperm. Why, why do you need this orgasm? 
Well, there are various uh, uh, explanations, which are some of them are silly. They're spandrel explanations, they, like upsack, or there's another one uh, I can't remember. But uh, it turns out that it's really uh, uh, it's uh, here. I'll, I'll give you the, the anecdote. Um, uh, Zeus uh, wants to. He's having a terrible time with Hera, and uh, so he he wants to find out. Um, whether they're, they're arguing whether the male or female has better uh, sex. So uh, Zeus goes to Tiresias, uh, who uh, was uh, a man that uh, he knocked uh, uh, on some snakes that were copulating and he turned into a woman. And then later on, he knocked on uh, these uh, copulating snakes again and he turned back into a man. So uh, Zeus figured, well, he's probably the best person to tell. So he asks uh, Tracy's, who has the better sex? And Tracy said, the female by nine times, three times three. And so where does he get this number from? Well, it's, it's a Greek uh, sense of spaciousness. So that this, uh, and he says that you, it's purely pleasure. Whereas the male has, has, a, uh, has the hard work and, you know, it's all over and then, you know, you have one orgasm and that's it, whereas the female... What, yeah, what Prum says about that is that the male orgasm is limited by the fact that it's got to be connected to ejaculation. Yeah, and right. once you've lost your ejaculate, you've got to regenerate it before you can have another one. But females can have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm. And I've never been a woman, but maybe they do have nine times as much pleasure as we do. So I thought that was a cute uh, Greek... Uh, gods and goddesses. Uh, I think that's a, a legend. I don't know if it's Ovid or who who was the who uh, was one of the, the renders uh, Aristophanes that maybe uh, yeah, Ovid probably probably retells that somewhere along the line. So so, uh, but how, how does the female orgasm uh, fit into evolutionary biology? Is there some sort of pure pleasure? Reason? It's the women control. Uh, the whole process. This is this is the hard feminist version. Uh, the women control. Uh, we we're co-evolving because it's ma and pa, but the women still have most of the control. So uh, that co-evolving, uh, the male has to have this orgasm. Uh, the female, well, why can't I? You know, it's I want to enjoy too. So it's uh, it's most women don't have orgasms. I think. Uh, certainly in Western society, in socialist countries, uh, women had a lot more orgasms because their sex was better. That sounds like communist propaganda. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's absolutely, this is after the How fall. do you know? Oh, yeah, you, were, you lived in the Soviet Union, so I guess yeah, you had I've direct also, experience of that. You know, people have been writing about this and doing research, and uh, it's, high, it's thoroughly documented. East Germany, there was a big study. Uh, I don't know if it was a big city. Really? So, so capitalism is bad for women's sexuality? Somebody Actually, should tell the feminists that. I Well, they should know. I can't. I, I'm not a feminist. Uh, I, you know, I've got my own uh, soapbox. Yeah, but, you know, the, the African societies, and if I do say so, the Muslim societies are not so great for women's sexuality either. Oh, I, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, I don't. That, there's, there's a lot of female... Uh, female circumcision, which no, no, that, that's 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 in certain sub-Saharan societies, and I think parts of Egypt might have done it, but that has nothing to do with Islam. It's actually Islam is against it. It's one of those many you know holdovers oh, from I'm earlier glad cultures. To, glad to hear that. Yeah. And yeah. because because uh, alcohol is prohibited, there's no rape. 
There's virtually no rape, and, and, and we don't hear about that because that's not what our media wants us to think about Islam. We don't hear the good things about Islam. All we hear are the bad things, or the supposed bad things. Yeah, actually, the, the critiques of the uh, the gender relationships in the Muslim societies tend to be around the fact that in Muslim culture, it's just assumed that women have more pleasure, sexual pleasure than men yes, do. It's, that's absolutely. because they, because they, it's, that's assumed because it's true, or they, if that's what they actually experience in that culture. And uh-huh. so that then women become a bit of a problem. Like, oh, if you know, we have to be careful of this out of control female sexuality that is so intense, and so we need to you know set some limits to it. Can I? Um, can I come back to what I what I started with? And sure, and you have thirty seconds to do it. We're, we're almost at the end, Josh. Go for it. Okay, I want to um, turn your your listeners on to art created by animals. There is a page in Wikipedia called uh, "Animal Made Art," and it's just extraordinary. Elephants can paint. They they paint likenesses of elephants. They play flowers and jungle scenes, and it looks like what it is. And wow. other animals, they have pigs. They have art created by pigs. There's one donkey art, uh, one donkey artist. Uh, dolphins create art. But he never wrote These... Don Quixote. <laughs> yeah, liter- <laughs> they're not they're not so good at literature, but yeah, they can they can. Paint. And, and my point is, why should this be? Why should we share an aesthetic? with other animals. And to me, that's evidence for Plato. What Plato says is true. Okay. There's something here, about beauty that really Okay, well, you're, you're outvoted, Eric. We, we agree that platonic, uh, <laughs> platonic ideals have some sort of actual existence, but we can debate that more next time. Thank you so much. This was really a very interesting discussion. Uh, Josh Middledorf and Eric Wahlberg. Uh, keep up the great work, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. That's Josh Mildorf, Eric Wahlberg, and Kevin Barrett back with Thaddeus Kaczynski in the next hour. Wondering about Are You Aware?